Greg, you'll be able to go from kumbaya to kumbaya before you even know it. After you start, stop drooling and wondering why your head is going to explode and (laughs) your body feels like, you know, people have just tied you to a pickup truck and dragged you around (laughs) for hours on end to see if you're willing to really make a change. And then what we'll do is once we've got you stabilized, Greg, I, I think we'll we'll sit down with Brendan and uh, we'll talk with him. <laughs> oh, for sure. The problem now is Brendan's looking forward to it, and that's that's even more scary. Welcome to another episode of the Law Offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker on this October 26, 2022. We are totally in the middle of Halloween week, and uh, we have an exciting guest for everyone today. His name is Scott H. Silverman, and he is a, a crisis coach, uh, rehab counselor, former drug dealer from way back in the day, and uh, currently an owner of lots of books and bookshelves, as you can see behind him. And uh, if everybody is feeling um, very into minutia, send us a list of all of the books that you can read behind him, and we'd totally appreciate that. If uh, I we love would, your we, Shelby, we, we wouldn't actually care. So, but our our client for today, which we'll get to, is the same client we've had for the last two weeks because we've given short trip to our client. So our client for this week, once again, is Life is Horror and You're Horrible. Reread Ducks Ducks. Behold, trapped in a hellscape of their own invention, socially unaware old white men bound by the pretense of being fake lawyers yet knowing no law, no exquisite Latin terminology, they are inexplicably compelled to quibble over minutia, squabble over triflings, and bicker like those who value their backyards far too highly without even knowing the difference between an easement and an alleyway. At this very moment, you have entered the heart of the law offices of quibble, squabble and bicker let's get started hi there tonight i'm sponsoring another nonprofit that i wholeheartedly support please just shut the fuck up foundation a bipartisan effort of mostly regular people people like you and me who are really just kind of over it i think there would be a lot of benefits if large groups of people just would just shut the fuck up now we're asking nicely hence the first word please not a judgy condescending please just a normal, quiet, caring, and understanding of this. Now, before you jump to conclusions and start guessing what side the please just shut the fuck up foundation is on, and perhaps coming up with some rehashed bullshit you heard on that new show you watch, the foundation wants everyone to equally just shut the fuck up. Pro-vax, anti-vax, you can all shut the fuck up. Worried about Trump running for re-election? Like to chant, let's go, Brandon? Which lives matter? Disney's ruining Star Wars? Celebrity gossip? Religion? Atheism? Please, just shut the fuck up. Your donation is going to supply millions of Americans who desperately need to just shut the fuck up with a monthly other shit to do box. It might be a puzzle, a stick to whittle, seeds to grow into the zucchini. Because the world could use more solved puzzles, whittled sticks, and zucchini less people talking about bullshit. Please send your donations to Please Just Shut the Fuck Up Foundation, Box 442, Portland, Oregon, 97217. Money tight, no worries. Please just forward us your list of people that need to shut the fuck up and do another shit box, and we'll add them to our growing list. You can visit our website at pleaseshutthefuckup.xyz. That's right, not .com, XY fucking Z. Join the movement. Together, we can shut the world up one fuck at a time. They're not getting one dollar from me. I don't why do I feel? Money. Why do I feel like this is directed at Greg for some reason? Yeah, not at all. I think so. It is not, if Greg. If you feel that way, please know. I, 
that wasn't the motivation. There's a lot of people besides Greg who need to just shut the fuck up. Greg's just one of them. That's all. We, we have a podcast full of those people. So, all right. right. That's, that was an excellent sponsor and quite appropriate for this day and age, Brenda. Thank you so much for tracking them down and getting right. their monopoly money to support this podcast. All right. So let's get to the realness of life. So today we have Scott H. Silverman, and uh, he is the head of yourcrisiscoach.com, where he is the crisis coach, and he's also what's called a family navigator, which I'm assuming involves a sextant, but I'm not quite sure. So, Scott, um, if you could tell us a bit about your story and how you got into crisis coaching, and um, you know how this how this applies to Halloween, that would be a really good segue as well. Well, it's a well how it applies to Halloween. Just to let you know, most of the people that I serve. Um, have been wearing costumes most of their life every day so nobody can actually recognize who they are and uh, their behavior is so out of control that uh, you know the sponsor would be uh, uh, very appropriate and and that's actually one of the key messages I give families uh, I don't quite frame it like that Brendan but I, I it's the same message you know God gave you two ears and one mouth if you close the one mouth both those ears might hear something that might be helpful to the person you care most about. So a little bit about me. I grew up in San Diego, still here. And uh, fast forwarding, I kind of crashed and burned. And when I turned uh, 30, decided it might be time to take my own life. I was not successful with that, which was a good thing. And got some help. It would be hard to have this conversation if you had done that, yes. It, it would be much harder, absolutely. Yeah. We need a Ouija board. <laughs> at least or some sort of you know telehealth is now available we could have communicated through some other dimension and through that experience um i learned that there's there's a, a path for me and that path was to help others so since 1984 i've had continuous sobriety coming up on 38 years and since then i've been pretty much a hopeless people helper and i work every day to try to help save lives and work with families to help them get their loved ones into the highest, best level of care. I run a treatment center here in San Diego um, for people who suffer from substance use disorders and alcoholism. And I work uh, primarily right now with veterans, which is really exciting. They're a great group to work with. And we're opening up a new nonprofit next month called the Veterans Navigation Center. And it's going to be to help wraparound services to help their families because uh, many times the veteran benefits don't cover the family. And when it comes to the disease of addiction, the family is usually as impacted as the person who's self-medicating. So through the years, uh, I've written a couple books. My most recent is The Opioid Epidemic. And as we all know, fentanyl right now is, is killing uh, hundreds every day with other opioids, almost north of 400 a day in this country, most of it accidental overdoses. So what I try to do is whenever I can get the message out there. So I really thank you guys for the opportunity to be here and share some of my experience, strength, and hope. And, and maybe someone out there might potentially hear the message, make a phone call, and see if we can uh, be a resource for them. Even though I'm only in one part of the country, I know how to help people and families navigate, which means get them pointed in the right direction, how to make the right call, what questions to ask, and more importantly, how to really sort out the level of integrity of treatment that exists out there. Because unfortunately, there's a lot of Treatment that doesn't have a lot of integrity. Matt, so did you book Scott? Is this an intervention? I just realized. <laughs> this is some little plot of yours, isn't it? 
<laughs> well, you no, know, it was not a plot, Greg. Uh, it's just but coincidental. I, you're, you're, you're I, so alcohol, I, I can't I can't pivot if that's the direction, Greg, we need to go in. So uh, <laughs> I, if, if you want, I can ask you a couple of key questions and, and we'll know what to do. do. Yes, let's do this. OK, good. Interview. Your, your level of enthusiasm is is way too high. So clearly <laughs> there's all you're already suspect that there may be <laughs> there may be an underlying issue. And uh, let me ask you, what do you think the issue is? I do drink a lot. Can you tell me more about that? Um, yeah, because it makes me happy. <laughs> and I'm not a happy camper, basically. Yeah, and that that mug that mug that you have clenched around your uh, your your fist around. Um, what's in that by chance? This at this time. Actually, this is the first day ever on the podcast. I don't have booze. It's weird. I had a drink when I left work. But usually I have booze. I'm drinking it the whole time. This is Pepsi. What? No way. Yeah, I know. It's a weird I'm coincidence. I'm stunned. Normally, it's yeah, like it's... A, a half of a fifth in that thing that he drinks. Yeah, yeah. Throughout the I course just of the um, I didn't have time to go to the store. Yeah. Well, there there are <laughs> there are three common um, items that take place with people who are suffering from self medication, and they are lying, cheating, and manipulating. So that when families ask me, how do we know if our loved one's telling the truth? And my my answer is consistently, if their lips are moving they're not telling the truth so unfortunately i i don't believe you but that's okay no, saying, i don't i will tell you every other podcast i drink just this one so you just, know what i mean greg is not known for being an actual liar so that is one yeah. positive point in his he has lied about certain things but this is something he's I, I don't know that he's necessarily proud of his drinking but he's always um Pointing out how how much of a high functioning alcoholic he is. Oh, so. yeah. and there and there's I, I was one of those as well. I had a job, yeah. I had a wife, I had a home, I had a mortgage, you know, and I was killing myself at a very sophisticated rate. Were you a user so, when I, you were a drug dealer? Were you getting high on your own supply? Were you taking drugs while you were selling? Well, I you know it's funny. I don't really like the term drug dealer. I prefer retired, unlicensed pharmacist. That I get that. Were you getting high though? You were taking the drugs, or you? Were... I, I I was, yes. To answer your question, I was, and and the reason was I wanted to make sure that the uh, my consumer was getting the best product the market had available. Oh, at the time. that's some good uh, quality assurance. Quality yeah, because I grew up in a family retail business where service was you know one of the underlying <laughs> benchmarks of how we made our customer happy. So I wanted to make sure that. You know, I could also articulate with my messaging that if you do this, this will happen. And if that happens, we would like to see it come back as often as possible. How did you move into the drug dealing business? Where did it where did it come from? Did unlicensed, something come naturally? Unlicensed. Sorry. Yeah. The unlicensed pharmaceutical business. Sorry. Distribu right. Yeah, distribution. Right. Well, I, here in San Diego, we're a border town. Uh, at the time, methamphetamine was coming across the border in quite a quantity, and I, I enjoyed it. And I found um, there were a lot of other people that did as well. So I, I just started slowly and built up. And then it's one of those word of mouth things. And I had a distribution center going on in high school that was significant. And what it did was it generated a cash flow to allow me to do other things like cocaine, hallucinogens, alcohol, smoke marijuana, and uh, find ways to you know get a lot of cocaine in my face. So at the the height of your pharmaceutical career, how much were you selling? Like, what was there a dollar figure you could put on? I would say, you know, not knowing how many people out there might see this that I wanted to, I, I would I, I would err to the side of caution, but I would say thousands a week, 
Um, but I was consuming quite a bit as well. I mean, cocaine back in those days was not inexpensive and it was pretty pure. And I was, you know, I was a purist. So I wanted to get as, as organically clean narcotics as I could. So we had a friend whose dad owned a pharmacy and his, his friend owned a liquor store. So we would get liquor for the guy who owned the pharmacy and made sure he drank at night when he passed out his son came to me with his keys and he had the alarm code, the safe combo. So we'd go to the pharmacy to make sure we had the really good stuff. And then we'd whack it with whatever we had at the time. And we'd sell it for competitive prices along with the methamphetamine. So, but I was, you know, every time I'd break it up, I'd, I'd test again from my customers. I wanted to make sure that they knew that their product was quality assured. And this guy never wised up and said, Hey, these guys keep getting me drunk. And every night my safe's empty of drugs. Like he didn't wise up to this. This just, you kept getting him drunk and stealing his drugs? No, I think he was kind of on that path already, and we just made it easier for him. And we never really checked back in. We felt it was better to leave, you know, some things are better left on alone and then said. So we we let him enjoy his time at home. And when he went to sleep, we enjoyed our time after hours. So did you ever get connected to like the big the big dealer, the big pharmaceutical industry uh, south of the border, like, like further Pablo south, Escobar. like like down below uh, Ecuador? El Chapo. No, no, no. Now, I, I know people that worked with them on the law enforcement side, but no, I never really got involved that way because there was, there was so much of it going on. And actually, <clears throat> at the time, San Diego was considered uh, the methamphetamine capital of the world because so much of it was being made in laboratories. But what I was getting was being made in um, what they now call them super labs in Mexico. So I had a high quality product uh, that had some quality assurance to it, and it had a higher percentage of methamphetamine uh, toxicity than what was being manufactured on the street. And it was a lot safer if you could compare the two things. So this is back in the early 80s, right? Uh, 70s. 70s. I didn't realize that meth was such a big deal back then at that stage. Yeah. You know, was, they, mean... they called it diet pills. It was really more, they, they called them white crosses because they literally had a white cross across the, the okay. actual pill. It was a small, thin pill, and they called them diet pills. So they were really in big demand uh, because in order to get that, you had to normally go to a doctor to get a prescribed do uh, diet pill. And people were finding that a month's supply was exhausted in a week, and they wanted to stay on their diet for the next three weeks. So I became their new best friend. You know, and you're doing this from goodbye. the time you were in high school till you were 30 years old? Correct. Was so that was about a 12-year stretch there. Correct. Of active okay. uh, use. They sell white crosses at 7-Eleven in the 90s. When I, I used to buy white crosses. They were, it was called truck, trucker speed, people refer to this, because truckers would take it to stay awake. Right. And it was like at 7-Eleven. I didn't need a prescription. It was just like, hey, it's a pet pill. Well, if, if it was truly methamphetamine, it wasn't uh, it wasn't le a legitimate product purchased through a normal supplier. There was somebody working some sort of a side business. Maybe that was all illegal at the time. But, but keep in mind also that during those days in the late 60s and 70s, even the DEA didn't have numbers on narcotics in, in hospitals like they do or in pharmacies like they do today. There was nobody tracking that. So they found ways to uh, distribute it and also to move it around. I mean, we used to go, not we, but we had a, a group that would go into Kaiser Permanente and actually would steal medication off the med, med cart because they never inventoried it and they never tracked it because that was not being done then. It wasn't seen as a major problem until it got into the later 80s and early 90s. Right. And then people went, oh, people are stealing this stuff. We better keep track of it. Right. Makes sense.
So at the age of 30, I, I remember seeing an interview of yours, you had like this epiphanal moment where you were getting ready to walk out a window. And um, what stopped you was somebody just walking in the door, I believe is what the story was. Yeah, I was actually elucidated I, on I, that, had, so. I had I had been in New York, I was in New York, and I had a, a whole week of blackouts, got into a fight at a bar, then uh, passed out on the streets and local law enforcement picked me up, took me back to my hotel. And the only reason it didn't arrest me is I happened to carry a badge uh, for my corporate security role that I had as part of my job description. So they there happened to be an undercover convention there. So they thought I was part of it. That's the only reason I wasn't arrested and put in jail in New York. And after I woke up that day, I realized that, you know, my life as I knew it was, was going to change a lot because every I hadn't been to my meetings all week. I led a group of 14 people. And they had been doing their thing and I was checking in, you know, via phone. And at the end of the day, I, uh, I was kind of MIA for the week. And then by the time I got to my Friday meeting, it was time for me to make a decision about how I was going to explain this. And I really couldn't. So I moved to the window seal in this office on the 44th floor. And I, you know, I'd smelled of alcohol. I was in my clothes. I'd slept all night and then I'd been kicked out of the hotel and, um, I couldn't even make the business meeting until I took catch my breath. And when I was sitting at the windowsill, bottom line is I just kind of opened the window and I was moving my butt out and I was going to fall and figured this will all be over. No more apologies, no more explanations. And I won't have to worry my family anymore. And this guy walks in and it was his office. And uh, he goes, what are you doing, man? You're going to fall out the window. I said, I'm just catching some air. I just need to breathe. And then he walked out. And the next thing in my head was my mom saying, you know, suicide is selfish. And because uh, she had said that to me a couple of times growing up, and that was my divine intervention. So came in and, and made a decision to call my wife and flew home that night and was in rehab the next day. I was hoping wow. that Mr. T walked through the door. <laughs> what? Yeah, don't do drugs, fool. <laughs> and it was Nancy Reagan who walked in. Yeah. I don't was the Kool-Aid guy. Oh, yeah, it was that guy. <laughs> Okay. wow that's what that's that's that was that's heavy man that's that's so did you just like end it you just so got rid of all your drugs stopped selling you know i and went to re i went to rehab uh, the next day and they put me on medication and i remember checking in they go i hope you had a good time partying last night because it's all over for you and now it's time to get clean and sober and i you know i just i kind of slept for about a week and then started going to groups and started learning about the disease of addiction i'd never been to a recovery meeting i didn't think of myself as an addict or an alcoholic. I'd been seeing a psychiatrist who was giving me medication because I wanted to stop smoking marijuana. <laughs> but mixing that medication with the marijuana really gave me a whole new high. So I was really, you know, <laughs> I had really, I had pivoted and uh, it seemed to be working out. And then I started to learn, you know, you've got to get rid of your old friends and, and, and uh, play places and playmates and play things. And it's time to really take an inventory and figure out what you're going to do next. Cause whatever path you've been on, um, you're not going to live much longer, you know? And so I, I decided in group, I remember they had family group and they said, so what are you going to do with all your stuff? You know, and I disclosed that I'd had a couple of, you know, ounces of marijuana at home and it was growing up in Garbersville, Northern California. And it was really good stuff. And I just didn't want to throw it away. So I said, I'm going to give it all to my brother. So they said, wait a minute, you're going to take all the stuff that nearly killed you and you're going to give it to your brother? That makes no sense. You know, so my family's kind of looking at me going, nah, yeah, they were a little embarrassed. So it was decided that my wife would find it and throw it away. And she did. Except wow. the stuff I didn't tell her about because I wasn't sure I was, I was done. That's the stuff you, 
You, you told your brother about later. That was well, no, that was the really <laughs> that was the really good expensive stuff that I had I had kind of hidden in the wall switches in case the you know the the DEA ever raided me because they <clears throat> I was told they never take they never touch electricity because OSHA won't let them. So I I hid my stuff in the wall switches. How long was it there before you finally got rid of that stash? Well, when I got out of treatment, um, I pretty much made a commitment. I was in there for 28 days and I, I, I got a sponsor and I'd, I'd been really committed to group and I made a decision that when I got home, I would, you know, I would go through and pull the, every, the pipes and the, the bongs and the marijuana and the cocaine and the speed and the hallucinogens. Um, what else was there? Oh, and all the alcohol that I had kind of hidden in a couple of boxes in the garage and I dumped the alcohol down the toilet and everything else and just flushed it. And it was really freeing actually, to be honest with you. Cause I, I didn't, I didn't want to do it again, but, and, and I couldn't really give it to my friends because it just, it, it would be like handing somebody a hot iron going, hold this for me. So <laughs> I got, I got rid of it and came back to group the next day and disclosed that. And, you know, it was uh, from there, everything in my life changed. Uh, most of it got better. Now, Brendan, what, um, what, you were in the unlicensed pharmaceutical business at one point, um, um, but you yeah, left under I was, different I was, circumstances. I had like a food truck compared to <laughs> to my man here at a like a whole restaurant. Yeah, I sold <laughs> weed. I sold weed in 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 the you know the Northwest, which I think is ironic now because I'm like, you kids don't even know what it was like growing up up here, man. You know, we had to like, I had a whole business. You know, now. You know, they, they were like at a pot shop, almost literally like 7-Elevens up here, um, which, of course, I came from Florida and Florida, it's medical only. It's not recreational. So anyway. So, yeah. So I, I was in the high school uh, pharmaceutical industry for a little while. Oh, I just thought there were people chasing you at one point. I thought I remembered some story about that. Yeah. You know, I, a real so, quick story. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah. Sure. I mean, in the, you know, the trouble with the unlicensed pharmaceutical industry is there are people with guns and the money's really high and a, tempers get real crazy. I'm, I'm sure Scott is aware at that level, even at the low, even at the local lower level, you know, guns. Well, you, you know, you keep a $20 bill in your pocket for someone who wants to smack you in the face and you carry a $100 bill in your wallet for somebody who wants to, you know, cut your head off. So you always are prepared for that. So a real quick story. So about three years ago, a friend of mine invites me to his high school reunion party. He was a year older than me. So he graduated a year before me, before I did. And I am sitting here talking to this random guy and we're talking about, you know, what it was like in high school. And he said, so what were you doing that wasn't really smart in high school? I said, well, I wasn't smart in high school. So I really wasn't paying attention. I, you know, was diagnosed with ADHD. I had behavioral health issues. I had a fifth grade teacher going back that actually had a heart attack with some activity I had created in class, nearly died. And they wanted to arrest me for attempted murder if he had died. So that my senior year, you know, that's where I, this guy was talking about, you know, when I graduated, he goes, what else were you doing? I said, well, I was, I was selling a lot of methamphetamine. I would wrap it up in little foil packets and I'd put it on the urinals in the men's room. He said, wait a minute. We, was it five white crosses in foil? I go, yeah. And he goes, we, they were always there. And then somebody would come pick up the money after we picked up. Cause I, I get used to go throughout the day and pick up more as I wanted it. I go, yeah, well, that was me. He goes, oh my God, I was one of your best customers. Imagine this. <laughs> Imagine this, like, you know, 30, 
four years later running into one of my best customers. He goes, oh my God. He goes, you were so famous in high school. Nobody really <laughs> knew who you were. And I had no idea who you were. And then they found out that I was, you know, Jewish. And they're going, oh, my God, you really crossed the line there, didn't you? I said, <laughs> I thought of it. I was a social entrepreneur. And I wanted to make sure that, you know, I, I didn't have to depend on my parents financially as I got older. And I tried not to. So, you know, it was just it was just so funny to, to be at a party literally 34 years later and have this guy say, you know, I was one of your best customers. I said, well, it's nice to meet you. <laughs> What, yeah. Kate, what what made you come up with the idea of putting the pills in foil in urinals? How did that no, I, concept I on come about? On top, of, on top of the urinal. So I visualized, oh. the, you know, the urinal. No, one not in them. No, it was on top. Well, the okay. idea of the, the well, foil, was, the idea of the foil was, you know, I wanted to make sure that everybody got equal amounts, number one. Number two, by me not physically handing it to somebody, I kind of looked into the law. I was not a possession of the, the methamphetamine when the transaction took place and when they left their dollar on top of the urinal, I picked up the money. I just, if I ever got caught, I just, I just found the money. It was in the bathroom. Yeah. Found the money. So it was all on like the honors system in terms, because anybody could have stolen your stuff, right? Well, you know, at a buck, a, a buck of foil pack, and those, you know, six stalls of urinals, it's not like my exposure was really high financially. Plus people kind of knew that if they were stealing stuff, they wouldn't be eligible for the, you know, you buy five and get one free. You know, the, the truth is, I think that there's a lot to be said, and this is a whole, I mean, this is not an endorsement. Please put something up on the screen. There's a <laughs> lot of entrepreneurial spirit that that uh, being a, a unlicensed pharmaceutical person in high school really provides. Like, I learned how to build, I built a whole little business. Weed was just one part of it, because weed is a social drug. You have to kind of get with them and smoke, and, you know, it's a whole thing. It's, it's a whole experience. So I use, but because it was was just part of it. And it was, they had bought it. So they were really treating me. It was like, I, I was the liquor distributor and I would bring the booze and they're like, I bought it. You want some? I'm like, sure. So it was, it was easier that way. But yeah, you start to expand. Suddenly I was having parties because I found if I could throw a kegger and I would get all the money from the tech, you know, paying for the alcohol. Then on top, I was going around and selling weed. And then eventually I added LSD to that list. I was making so much money, I had to get a real job just to convince my mother I wasn't doing what I was actually doing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it, it can happen. I mean, people are doing that right now with fentanyl. You know, they're going to the dark web, they're buying materials, they're making their garage, and they're making millions. I mean, that's why that you're, we're seeing the distribution so heavy and so many people, you know, dying because there's no quality assurance when they're putting this fentanyl into counterfeit medication. People think they're taking Xanax or Adderall, and they're actually taking... Um, Fentanyl. That's Do you, are you hearing a lot of stories of Jankum overdoses? Of Jankum. Jankum? Yeah. Man, I think this is an urban legend at this point. I don't I don't think it's an urban <laughs> legend. It's it's a real thing, you it's know. What, what what is what is it made of? Jankum. <laughs> based on the based on the name of your show, I'm afraid to even ask what that yeah, might be. You should be. I was going to say, Greg, over to you, Matt. You, let's have this conversation. I'll, I'll just... So, so we found out about Jankum from some guest of ours like a year or so ago, where he said that people are taking like fermented bags of feces and um, inhaling the. Uh, here, I'll, I'll get it from Wikipedia here. So it's a purported inhalant and hallucinogen created from fermented human waste. In the mid-90s, it was reported to be a popular street, street drug among Zambian youth 
They would reportedly put the feces and urine in a jar or bucket and seal it with a balloon or lid, respectively, then leave it out to ferment in the sun. Afterwards, they would inhale the fumes created. So I was thinking that if you're in your line of work, you may have come across that in some way, but apparently you're you not know, dealing with a lot of Zambian youth. It's interesting. There was a report that just came out about a week ago that 97% of our country is suffering from some form of mental health issues or health, you know, barriers right now. And and I always wondered, where's the 3%? I got to believe that maybe the 3% was taken to Jacob. Because <laughs> I, I, I think that's a small group. And I'm not quite sure what the outcome of that would be mixing those two uh, body fluids and what what would what would that would do for the mind body or soul other than make you feel like you're doing something somebody else isn't doing which could feel pretty good from an ego perspective but it just sounds awful to me yeah yeah, yeah. it's like you know you know there, there's a certain i guess you could derive a certain amount of pleasure from the gag reflex and that's just <laughs> overstimulating that response a lot yeah. like i don't know who is into that very small percentage of people. Yeah, I think see. very poor people. I think it's yeah. like, no money to buy drugs. We, we can't shit. grow. We can't grow weed or mushrooms. Yeah, we have no money, but we do have shit. That's what that sounds like. Perhaps it tickles the medulla oblongata in some way. It just goes directly for the hypothalamus, perhaps, or some other part of the anatomy where they just get something out. I don't know. It's something that yeah, I, I would, I would really never push try. back on that. And I would challenge that. I mean, I'm one of those kind of people, for example, I used to take hallucinogens. I, I don't know. Normally my interviews don't go in this direction, but it's kind of cool. We're kind of revert, you know, re reviewing the past and I'm starting to salivate. So we may have to shift here soon, but I would take, <laughs> I would take clear light acid, you know, Brendan. And, you know, that was little, that was Brendan. A, a, liquid, a liquid. Well, he mentioned hallucinogens. Oh, so I would do it right in my eye. Were you that's exactly your... what I would do. And, and you know, you put it in your tear, tear duct and it would dissolve quicker and go right to your brain mm -hmm. rather than eating it and waiting it for it to get digested. Yeah. Isn't ahead, like acid? That's, like, that's totally you know, true. I, I, I swear I have a, a mark on one of my eyes because of that. I don't know that it is true, but it feels like it's true. Yeah. Isn't that like a drop of liquid acid, though? That's like 30 hits or something, isn't it? Like when it, it would be dropped on a, on a, a piece of paper and it, it would just, you know, it'd be diluted first. Okay. Otherwise, you know, people would be, you know, flapping their wings and flying around, and maybe that's where the yeah, Jacob or whatever that's called was created. <laughs> those after guys, those after guys you went, took the wait, LSD, I got a new thing. Forget drinking orange juice. Let's shit in a bucket, put a balloon on top. Yeah, I don't know how those those people are strange. Yeah. So today, I, I do the complete opposite. I work with people who are polydrug, duly diagnosed, have co-occurring issues, and try to help them understand that. You know, and I, the first question is, look, if things are going right for you, don't change a thing. But, you know, if you're on your fourth DUI and your gambling debt's over a million dollars and you know, your third wife is now divorcing you and you can't seem to maintain your job, maybe right. there's something we could look at that might be helpful for you to do that might make you feel better or, or do better or be better. My, my if, question is, which is kind of going to what you're saying, is there, having dealt with so many of these people, is there a point where they make that switch? Like what, what's the, what's the, what's the, there's gotta be, it seems to me there's maybe not with everybody, but an average where this flip, the switch flips, that's not like, obviously, you know, I'm on my fourth DUI, but I'm just that, that struggling. Is a, like that like is a, Greg here, for example, he's kind of functioning, but, but he's questioning. So where do you, you know, how do you find that? 
question. I, I don't think that, by the way, that's a great question. And I don't think there's an easy answer to it. <clears throat> but my simple response to it is everyone believes they're different and, and they are, you know, and there's different levels. Some people just like to party. Some people are, are abusing it. But there are about 15% of the population that suffer from this addiction, if you will. Only 10% will seek help. So sometimes when you're talking to 10 people, finding out who that 10% is takes a little bit of time. But there is no real switch because most people, first of all, think about this. It's a disease of denial. So if you mm -hmm. have the problem, you don't think you have the problem. It's sure. the inability to feel feelings. So if you have feelings, you don't know how to really monitor or measure or manage, you tend to self-medicate to suppress them. And that could be a good feeling or a sad feeling. It wouldn't matter. It's just feelings and pressure bust pipes. So people who suffer from any kind of pressure, they're going to find ways to anesthetize themselves. And the third piece of it is the, you know, the, the, the shame that goes along with it and the guilt that goes along with it, it's called denial. So between those three factors, if you will, right. the average person really isn't going to raise their hand and go, oh, by the way, I wake up every day and I do everything I can to kill myself. It just doesn't exist. So it isn't really a switch. It's more of a seed planting and it's more of a conversation, building trust and knowing that at some point, you know, Greg's level of uncomfortability through this hour is going to increase and he's mm -hmm. going to think and reflect. And, and, and if he does what most people will do, he will fill that mug and he will consume it quicker than he ever has to get past that conflict in his head right now. And then his mind will tell him, keep going, you're just fine. Well, right. on that note, I think that we should have your contact He's information. <laughs> oh, let me put it up. So uh, that, six, that way, six, that six, Greg will know how to reach out to you when the time is uh, right. Uh, let, me, let me throw my number out right now, Greg. 619-993-2738. Or just Google Scott H. Silverman. And you'll find me anywhere on the web and just text me or call me and we will hold hands together on the path of transformation. And I will do everything I can to be a resource for you when you're ready. Sorry, Greg, you'll be able Thanks. to go from Kumbaya to Kumbaya before you even know it. Right. So, After you start, stop drooling and wondering why your head is going to explode and <laughs> your body feels like, you know, people have just tied you to a pickup truck and dragged you around <laughs> for hours on end to see if you're willing to really make a change. And then what we'll do is yeah. once we've got you stabilized, Greg, I, I think we'll we'll sit down with Brendan and uh, we'll talk with him. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> To, like, to get all of the acid sucked back the problem, out of the his problem, eyeball. The problem now is Brendan's looking forward to it, and that's that's even more scary, you know. <laughs> right. I'm I'm in. I'm like, let's let's do this. Let's get into some. That's right. Some emotions. All right. And do, do you want to say what your website is too? Because we're going to get into the uh, second half yeah. of the show in a moment. Uh, your yourcrisiscoach.com. Yourcrisiscoach.com. Some people may not remember that, so just do Scott H. Silverman. You'll find my treatment center. You'll find our new nonprofit and you'll find me. And, uh, you know, if you know, and by the way, you guys may not have an issue, but according to science, each one of you knows one to four people right now that are suffering. Yeah. He's right below me on the screen. Okay. Yeah. Right there. Wait, someone's under your desk right now. <laughs> That's right. So, there is. so just, just a quick question. Now you're, you're obviously in San Diego, but let's say we had a listener in Omaha, Nebraska, how, how do you work with people who are 
just like this electronically we through, through the pandemic you know and i find that my you know my interventions aren't normal normally done the way the traditional ones are i talk to people we have a conversation we can do it via zoom conference call uh texting is pretty hard because i like to look at people and see if their <laughs> lips are moving and if they're telling the truth and most aren't because look you know when when somebody hits a wall whether it's because they got arrested or they realize <clears throat> because family keeps telling them or they look in the mirror one day and go wow I, I didn't look like this last week and it's really been three years so it's it's good to have the conversation and to know that you can trust somebody and because I'm not a clinician in some ways I can open doors they can't uh, and I'm also a guy in long-term recovery so I've been there I've done that and I, I work really closely with a variety of experts on a daily basis and what I can do is suggest who they might call might want to talk with and then i become you know kind of like the the lifeguard i'm the one that swims out um right. only when the water is warm because i don't like cold water and i say you know let me get you ashore and then start fighting and you knock them out bring them in and you resuscitate them and then you start talking and they go hey you know what happened out there i go i don't know let's talk about it all right scott h silverman and uh, that'll lead perfectly into our cooking segment where he'll probably have to get some people out of recovery if they actually try this particular recipe oh no is this jankum <laughs> souffle no please yes, no more jankum references mart, it's a safe mart come to safe mart and be safe safe mart is a proud sponsor of food is for eating with waspy soda Bob. today's special sauteed tuna eyeballs only $20 a pair come get some at safe mark be safe food is for eating food is for eating food is for eating with waspy soda pop hey there everybody this is waspy soda pop and i got a sweet treat for you that anybody can make too sweet these are chocolate lava cakes with real lava first you're just going to get some baking spray to spray some custard cups with get one stick of butter two ounces of bittersweet chocolate one titanium mixing bowl two ounces of semi-sweet chocolate three ounces of magma fresh one and a quarter cups of powdered sugar two whole eggs chicken eggs i gotta keep specified people three egg yolks one teaspoon of vanilla half a cup of all-purpose flour and some vanilla ice cream for serving now let me give you your instructions. Pay close attention. You want to preheat your oven to 425 degrees Fahrenheit. Spray four of the custard cups with baking spray and place on a baking sheet. Microwave the butter, bittersweet chocolate, and the semi-sweet chocolate in a large bowl on high until the butter is melted about one minute. Whisk until the chocolate is also melted. Stir in the sugar until well blended. Whisk in the eggs and egg yolks, then add the vanilla. Stir in the flour. Divide the mixture among the custard cups. Bake it until the sides are firm and the centers are soft. That's about 13 minutes. You just let it stand for a minute. All right, then you want to travel to a nearby active volcano in the fastest mode of transportation you have. If you have like a paralyte propeller type object, use that. That'll get you there quicker or a helicopter, something like that. Anyway, because you know, you don't want your cakes to be cooling too much by the time you're going to the active volcano anyway while you're there you want to collect three ounces of magma in your titanium bowl then cover properly return to your kitchen invert the lava cakes on individual plates place one ounce of magma to taste on top of each cake 
and serve with vanilla ice cream. And there you have it, some authentic chocolate lava cakes with real lava or magma. You know, they're basically the same thing. This is Waspy Soda Pop. By the way, food is for eating. See you next time. All right. Oh, there are lemurs at the end. <laughs> they're collecting, the they're, they're I, I collecting just, the, the loose magma, I think, afterwards. I, I, I just want to I just want to point out to, to our guest, Scott, are you sure that you want to talk to me after Greg and maybe <laughs> not the guy that just did that recipe? Hey, we call I, him the I, I haven't touched an illegal substance since 1990. So, well, so there. Legal, I mean, remember what, remember what <laughs> our guest said about lying? Mm-hmm. It's true, though. I have not. Sure, I'm sure it is. <laughs> okay. Well, you don't have to believe me, Brendan. You just have to deal with the fact that we're going right into the next segment, of course, which is uh, a legal yeah. segment, which means that you have to find uh, a question from our audience I'm to looking. give to Greg, possibly. I mean, if you can find one. Oh, there's plenty. It's just whether or not Greg is prepared. I think Greg is always I'm prepared. I'm always prepared. Here we go. I'm a legal. He has evil. an opinion, may not always be right. He's a real fake lawyer. He's old and he's white. Ask him a question, cause he's a good egg for bogus advice. Ask Greg. Ask Greg. Ask Greg. All right, here we go. What is the question that you have gotten from our audience for Greg? Um, you know, I'm, I'm just sort of scanning through it, trying to think of something where guest counsel could also comment. And, you know, I know that I we get a lot of these, but I think it has to do with our, our you know, demographics. And it's a divorce question, Greg. So it says here, uh, dear Greg, um, I'm currently involved uh, in, a, in, a, in a protracted divorce with my, my ex. Um, the, the challenge is that my ex is um, has some substance abuse issues. Namely, um, she's an narcoleptic. So uh, she drinks a lot of coffee to counteract this. However, coffee is not illegal. But yet I'm citing her spasticity. That's the word he uses. I don't know if that's a real word. Because she gets so wired on coffee. Um, Greg, what should I do? What's your advice? Can I use this? Is this applicable? Or should I just carry on? Love, Steve. Well, I'm also an expert in divorce law, even though I've never been married and never been divorced to that follows. Um, I, I have seen many cases in my career where spasticity has been a cause uh, a just ruling against a spouse. Is that the legal term, spasticity? Yes, he, okay. he nailed it. Okay, Spasticity. How do you spell? He, how do you spell that, Greg? I figured he Googled it. I, you know, it's 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 obvious. S p a z z i c i t y. That's exactly how I thought it was spelled. All fourth graders know this, Matt. Anyway, yeah, I mean, it's Latin. It's like a lot of legal terms. Yes, Latin. So yeah, of course it's a uh, it's no fun being married to someone who's a spaz all the time, and so you know it's just as good as if she was cheating on you or uh, abusing you. So what's uh, the actual legal question in that? I, I didn't quite hear it. Well, whether whether or not the whether or not our, our dear reader or dear listener here could use 
should he focus on the substance abuse? Because obviously she was abusing coffee too much. She was just, uh-huh. you know, but she was doing it because she was sort of self-medicating against her narcolepsy. But she was such a uncontrollable lunatic at the time. I mean, I'm just uh-huh. sort of reading between the lines here. That's not what they said. Okay. <laughs> I understand. It sounds like if he really loved her, though, he'd figure out a way like, hey, drink a little less coffee so you're not, mm. drink enough so you're not falling asleep, but don't be a spaz. So that's your legal uh, no, expertise. That's more, that's more personal. Just uh, it seems like maybe there's other issues that he doesn't love her anymore. Because uh-huh. I think if anyone loved their spouse, they'd try to deal with it. And, hey, let's uh, change the dose. So I can. We're really, really changing the topic of the conversation, but okay, I'll let him know, dude. Just work it out. <laughs> that's your legal. That's the legal advice. All right. Well, thank you, Greg, once again for that um incisive information advice that you've given to our our listeners so we'll, let's get on into our client for today and hopefully scott can add something to it so our client is once again is life is horror and you are horrible uh reread duck stuck so i think all of us have some indication that life can be horror in in terms of what can happen to people i mean scott you'd given your story about how you were nearly out a window and imagine if that had actually happened the horror that you would have created first of all for the people at the bottom of that building you know once you landed and uh what that would cause organ grinder down there he would landed right on the monkey kill the monkey (laughs) i thought you were making a pun about uh, organ grinding uh, i think it was the upper west side in manhattan so I don't think it would have been an organ, maybe a pizza maker or a coffee. He would have, he would have got the calzone guy. Oh. Yeah. And, you know, an itinerant uh, accountant. But, you know, in New York, strange things like that happen all the time. They just step over them and keep moving on to their, you know, agenda for the day. Which is kind yeah. of an interesting thing that happens with people who are around a lot of horrible things. They get inured to it. And it doesn't affect them anymore. I guess it's like horror movies, like why they keep getting worse and worse and worse in terms of the the violence and the visceralness that's done in these movies, where people are no longer looking at it as a horrible thing. It's just a thing, you know. It's bad, but not as bad as it could be. Like, you know, like the the Hellraiser movies when they come and they rip their skin off of you in hundreds of pieces. It's not such a big deal. Yeah, it's it's a tolerance thing, kind of going back to. The guest, you know, it's like you, you, you know, you get to a certain point and then, you know, that next level isn't that bad and it just becomes easier and easier and easier until it's just Portland, you know, and then you go, wow, how did we get here? Just Portland. You know, this used to be kind of a sleepy <laughs> little Northwest town with some lumberjacks and some rednecks. Now it's like, it's bizarre. It's coffee snobs and tent cities. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's very strange. I think that's how the, the line is divided, actually. It's like you are either one or the other, coffee snob, or you live in a tent. I guess I'm I'm on the tent side of that argument. If we're gonna be just <laughs> Maybe we should rename Portland Thunderdome. Let's change really? the name of the city so people know what to expect. And the no. mayor will be Tina Turner? Yes. <laughs> That'd be cool, but no. It's not really Thunderdome. That's probably, that, that would title would go to Florida before it'd come to Portland. Yeah, I think Florida would be like Blunderdome, though, more than anything. I don't know. Oh, too much. Well, I guess there's more thunder happening on the East Coast than over here. Although we did have a good thunderstorm here the other day. Um, but getting back to life being horror, have you guys 
have any of you ever experienced like legitimate horror, like something just the worst thing you could possibly have imagined occurring nearby you that um, you witnessed that that it happened to anybody here? Not really for me. No. So no like I, major deaths or anything. I saw a gay guy get this back. Is not a, this is attempted. not a... That was scary. What happened? This, uh, I was going to a gay bar with my brother and I heard this like gay guy screaming, help, help. And these like fucking shitty punk teenagers were beating him up, like gay bashing, you know, just because he was gay. And I ran over there, but you know they didn't really hurt him much. They kind of got scared off. But it was just horrifying. I've never been in. I've never seen violence. I've been lucky. Yeah. I um, and this is you know this is I I this is not this really happened, and it was on Halloween. The most horrible thing I ever saw was we were trick-or-treating. This was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And uh, my our parents would take us to a, a richer neighborhood than ours, a more suburban part of Albuquerque. And we were around there. So there was a lot of kids that came from the lower class neighborhoods in this neighborhood. Well, we were coming up the street and we heard what sounded like the world's biggest firecracker. So we thought, ooh, and we came running. Wasn't a firecracker this teenage boy had been harassing probably i'm assuming this man behind the door like knocking on his door dude kick open open the door and just shot the kid so the kid is laid sprawled out in the front yard of the house there's kids all over the place it's halloween and he's you know bleeding out if he's not dead that was probably the most horrible thing i've ever seen wow and so were, were you called in by the police as a witness for that no, we were kids. We just looked at each other, saw that, and went ah, and scattered because I was like, like nine, you know, out out the door quickly. I think for me, the closest I've come to anything like that is well, you get you know the story of my uncle having been killed, and then they found his body years later under a trailer. So there's that story, but that wasn't something I was necessarily close to. I and mean, I like the only other thing would be I was walking in Los Angeles one evening. And uh, all of a sudden I hear, I'm walking with a friend of mine, we're going back somewhere, we're leaving a pool hall, and we hear bam, bam behind us. And we turn and we look, and maybe about a quarter of a block from us, there's a guy shooting at a car that's speeding off across the road. Where And that's as, as horrible as it gets, I guess, per se, um, because I didn't see what happened to the people driving the car, and we walked away so that they didn't start shooting at us. So that was like the extent of it. And, um, but yeah, that's the most, I think the closest I've ever got to anything that bad, so to speak. I just have a feeling our stories are going to be chicken feed compared to Scott's being a meth dealer or unlicensed. Well, pot, unlicensed, unlicensed pharmaceutical. I mean, come on. I mean, our, I'm sure he's heard lots of that. stories, but has he, ex have you experienced any horror per se in your life? Oh yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. <clears throat> In my first book, it's called uh, Tell Me No, I Dare You, um, that I wrote back in 08 and had, had re-edited in 2011. I talk about my experience. I used to do what was called drug and gang eradication. My job was to go into large apartment complexes in difficult neighborhoods and negotiate with the drug dealers to please stop selling drugs on the property. So I would go in, you know, pretty well strapped and and you know i had a nine millimeter under my arm a 38 on my ankle and a small three 380 on my waist you know with about Travis eight, Bickle. with 800 rounds in my car and this is back in the 80s and I, you know one day I, I you know and i was 
working for you know the courts, sometimes criminal justice, sometimes the landlord, sometimes the property management company. I did this for about 10 years. I got really good at it. My job was to get the drug dealers off the property so the bank could come back in and control the property. And one day, I, I remember it was like four in the morning, because that was, that's always a good time to meet people. They're always bright. <laughs> Yes, they're always happy to see you at four in the morning. And I'd always go in the, you know, yellow jacket, you know, and, and I never went in with law enforcement. And I walk in and I knock on this guy's door and, and he, he I, I can hear some noise going on. So I stepped away from the door a little bit. He comes out and he's got this big old knife. And, you know, at that point, I didn't really want to do anything till I knew I had to. And he, and he put it up to my chin. And he says, you know, man, you, you can't come here. You're not supposed to be here. It's, you know, I don't know what time it is, but it's really late. <laughs> you know, I said, no, actually, it's not late. It's early. And then he, he starts to push it up my chin a little bit. So I'm moving my head back. And I said, look, buddy, here's the way this is going to work. You may get a chance to push that blade in me. But I got to tell you, I got 15 rounds in this nine that my hand is on. And I will empty this clip. And I will make a nice little Swiss cheese sandwich out of you. So you make the decision. Do you really want to dance? Or do you want to pay your rent? Or do you want to leave? Oh. Oh. So he put the knife down. He apologized. He goes, I'll be out before the sun rises. And that was probably one of my scarier moments. Because that's just not something I was trained for. Right. <laughs> How do you train for a giant knife being put right under your chin? Well, yeah. you know, and I and I got to tell you, I because of the work I was doing, I I I got to know the medic, you know, the medical examiner, and I got to know, you know, the 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 people that from the city that came in and picked up dead bodies, and I saw a lot of them. It was, uh, you know, it was some scary stuff. But this this was back in the day when people were still carrying pagers, and crack cocaine was being sold on, you know, little card tables out in front of apartment complexes. And the gang wars were on, and it was just, it was, it was a scary time for everybody. Now, and, this is all while you were in San Diego? Yeah, in San okay. Diego. But then I got a job offer to go to L.A. to work in this complex where, you know, I don't know, what was that um, training day? I saw that movie, Training Day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was the complex that I got a job offer through the <laughs> housing authority to come up, and they were going to pay me a ridiculous amount of hourly wage, travel expenses, and I go... <laughs> you couldn't pay me enough. I went up there one day with some law enforcement. They go, look, we never go in here by ourselves. <laughs> and and he goes, if you're thinking about coming to work up here, you, you better have an army with you. And, and you better be better armed than everybody in here. This is a place that had murders every day, multiple rapes, fires going on. <clears throat> it was like, it was a war zone. It was absolutely, you know, that movie in, uh, it was in New York City where they ran the building. Everybody was armed. It was- that it was, Fort Apache? No, it was, uh, uh, they were making, making. I think they were making crack in the building. And it was a famous movie. It's been around, you know, a long Escape time. from New York. Something like that, yeah. Escape, Escape, from, New Escape from New York. But it sounds no, like Greg, scary. it's not Escape it from New York. It sounds like scary, though. It was, it was scary. I mean, I, I spent, a, you know, three hours just touring around with these guys and then walking around the neighborhood. And <clears throat> you could see the windows were shot out. Everything was boarded up. And, you know, if businesses still existed, they were only liquor stores. And, you know, you walk in there and, you know, they've got shotguns slung over their shoulder. So it was a war zone. It was it was some very nasty time. You know, the Crips and Bloods were fighting. The Hispanic gangs were fighting. And, you know, and law enforcement was just completely overwhelmed with uh, what was going on.
with your experience dealing with people in desperate situations, what do you think makes it okay in their minds to just go ahead and murder other people? What do you, where, where does it become like, yeah, this is like an everyday thing. I just get shoot people and I'm okay with it. You know, I don't, first of all, I don't think people are okay with it. And I think there's a, there's a part of the mind that is just, um, they, they've just eaten too much of that lava cake and, and the, the mind, <laughs> because I don't think you can have a soul and a heart and take somebody else's life like that. But, but in the gang, world you know there are people that that, that they grow up culturally and they're taught that's the way life's going to be i mean that and and you look at some of the gangs that run you know run prisons that some of the old guard and you know they're dying out now so things are changing but they ran things and you know it was they were an army and and the gang was their family and they would do whatever they were told to do whatever their role was and if they wanted to get in the gang there's certain things they have to do you remember the drive-by shootings and a lot of that was gang affiliation things in order to join the gang you have to demonstrate that you're willing to take someone else's life and it was it was just like a it wasn't a game but it, it wasn't really a job it was just a commitment to get to a higher level to get more power more prestige more influence and and it, you know, in many cases, people wanted that opportunity. And so it's like their form of uh, fraternity hazing, which is killing well, somebody to it show was their ladder. It was their corporate ladder to grow up the ladder, you know, to get uh, more power, more prestige, and then have under, you know, underguards under them and work their way to the top. And that was one way to do it. But, you know, you don't live long like that because you, you then become the target because somebody right. else is going to take you down. So those were scary times back in the 80s. No doubt about it. But, you know, it's interesting because here we are. 2022 and i i think what's going on today is we more scary because the randomness of it the, the young people that are doing it uh and the lives they're taking there's no there's no connection if you think about these school shootings you know right it's, it's like it's almost like there's no i don't want to say i don't want to use this word but it, there almost was a culture to it at one point and now it's just so it's just crazy Random. randomless like like even American, even politics, you look at politics in the 80s and 90s, it was crazy and all that, but it had a certain order. Now it's just bananas. You're like, wait a minute, this guy's the president. Now this guy's the president. And that, ooh, yeah, it just seems like we just keep the kaleidoscope just keeps getting weirder and weirder. And then you add the fact that everything's become politicized now. Right. People are doing things because their party tells them they should, whether it's right or wrong. And it's just insane. I don't want to get into the politics piece, but, but you know, uh, it, and I see some of the most um, difficult things for families. You know, when a mother calls me and says, you know, I'm in intensive care. You were right. My son's overdosed again. You know, he's unconscious. What do I do? I go, well, just stay with him and call me, you know, when you get home later and we'll talk. Those are the kind of calls I get today. And, and five years ago, it wasn't like that. You know, hmm. my kid's acting out. He's acting like a fool. He's yelling at his sister. I think he stole some money from me. I said, what do you mean you think? Well, he stole some money from me. I said, okay, well, let's get real with reality so we can process it. You right. know, and ten, and 10 years ago, it was like, you know, Johnny's growing marijuana. He's covered. What are we going to do? And so in the last 10 years, I, the, the, the trajectory has been very scary. Right. Very, very scary. So uh, our sponsor aside in terms of the uh, Shut the Fuck Up Society or Foundation, sorry, uh what the, what can what can we do to make it a, a less horrible world what is, what, is, what are your thoughts well you know I, lo I love that saying one person helps one person um you look someone in the eye and just smile can you imagine getting greg in a, in a motorhome taking a long trip it just every 100 miles we stop and get out and go hey how's everybody doing 
we, we could change things with that. That's something that's simple. People being nice to people, people listening. Yeah, right. According to science, one of the most important things that isn't happening that used to happen is people sit down as a family a couple of nights a week and just talk to each other and right. listen. And more importantly, listen to each other. Really listen. Put your phone down. You know, my wife likes to watch Safari and, you know, and she likes to watch, you know, the news feed in the morning. And if I want her attention, I got to, you know, turn off the she, she watches she safaris safari yeah, yeah she's a big fan of safaris and she's going on one I'm, my girls and her i don't want to go but they're going to go next year and she's very excited about it she loves animals and she loves watching you know cougars sit up in trees and elephants free and wild kingdom yeah you just but, need to yeah. take her to to uh east side of la and she'll get to see wild kingdom well, we got the San Diego Zoo here, you know. So yeah, that's true. Just, just like I don't, I don't like to wait in line. It's <laughs> you know, like okay. <laughs> I want to, I want to, I want to get up in personal, real, right now with that leopard or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think we, about a drug addiction though was just a quality of life issue. You know, most people who have a good situation, they're less tending to be drug addicts. Like that's why, like in inner cities where people have miserable lives, it's like why not fucking take care of one? It might kill me in ten years. But reality fucking sucks, so I don't care. You know, my my life is a piece of shit. I might as well escape, even if it's going to hurt me. It is a common um, explanation for people or rationalization, if you will, to do those kind of things. And, and the yeah. pandemic, you know, ki kids used to go to school every day and act out and have fun and scream and yell and come home tired. They don't have that, you know, and, and domestic violence is way up, you know, child abuse is way up. And, you know, and now with the politics out of control, it's really hard to find a quiet spot. So practicing self-care, going back to that, Brendan, you know, just sitting around, breathing in and out quietly, meditating a little bit, yoga, go for a walk, you know, have, you, have your favorite meal once a week and maybe have an extra slice or an extra scoop and celebrate life. I mean, we, we're not doing that right now. It's like we're, we're avoiding celebration and we're not getting to, we're kind of waiting. And, you know, life's too short when you hear about people that things, weird things happen. So I'm, I'm, you know, I go to my recovery meetings. I don't know what I would do if I didn't do And I go four days a week and I've been sober nearly 38 years. But wow. I want to, I want to be better, feel better and get better. So and you're keeping the horror and the horrible out of your life as much as you can. I'm, well, I'm trying to bank as much as I can. So when it does approach, um, I'm able to manage it as best I can process it, then move on. Got it. Yeah, it's almost right, like we have we do have one final segment, Brandon, for you. So uh, why don't we do that, and then you can say your piece at okay. that stage. So sure, we're just you know we're just running short on time. So yeah, here yeah, we go. yeah. I know this it, it, it is the last that. word with Brendan Haggerty. I don't know. That. That's like my favorite part of the the show is whenever I play that one. Yeah. Anyway, so Brendan, so our client for today was life is horror and you're horrible. You've mm -hmm. got the last word. Yeah, life is horror and you're horrible. And you know, uh, aside aside from you know uh, my my foundation, which is still very close to my heart in terms of people just need to shut the fuck up. I think it kind of goes back to what Scott says: is that silence is important. Reflection is important, and that's the way you keep the horror out is you have to be present. You have to spend time in the moment and not just get consumed by all of the just nonsense that's out there in the world. So be a better person, um, Greg. And we'll all <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is an no. intervention, guys. It is You've got Greg crying right now. Look at that. Oh. He's sad. 
Greg, no, seriously, you, you know, I'm just a bus and a train and maybe another bus ride away. You can come visit me anytime. I'll give you a hug. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, hey, that's like, it. Brendan, let me throw something in just so you know. Yeah. If you if you're really gonna maintain that relationship with the sponsor, I would highly recommend it's what the fuck is it? What the fuck is that? What you call it? or shut the fuck up? Please, please, please shut the fuck up. Sh please shut the fuck up. Dot org org. That way, as a nonprofit, you can get the resources you need to really build on that. Okay, you're right. Well, our uh, law offices are a dot org as well. So yeah, we've been working that angle. There you go. I'll, I'll have to get back just register one. that domain. I thought we were dot gov. <laughs> No, we're we .org, Greg. I thought we had subsidies from the government. I thought, we were <laughs> yeah. I thought you were XYZ. I mean, that's, you know, that's easy. Yeah. For that's those like of, uh, both of you out there who don't know it by now, we're www.qsblaw.org. And, uh, and we, never promote the, we never promote the website. So there we are promoting it for once. Anyway, I want to thank Scott H. Silverman very much for coming on today. I appreciate you putting up with the silliness that we have. That uh, your, your story obviously is very serious and it's something that people should know about. Please do uh, give your number and your uh, website again for anybody who actually needs help and they're looking for recovery help. And, and I can I can tell you, Scott, if they're listening to this podcast, they probably they need, they they need, need help. help. Well, you know, some of the, some of the guests, admitted or not, some of the stars might be as well. You never know. Scott H. Silverman, 619-993-2738. And tonight, or whenever you see this, a little prayer for Brendan and Greg and Matt. And remember, if nobody's told you they love you today, I love you guys. Aww. Thanks. I I will accept your love in the spirit. Yeah, which is Matt given. doesn't love anyone, but... <laughs> Well, I'm saying he's the one to talk to, Scott. I'm serious. <laughs> the one. I I never call anybody. They have to call me. I want I want to see him make that first call. You know that they have to have some skin in the game. Wait, Fair enough, Brendan. What is what is the issue that I need resolving in my life? What are you What are you suggesting? Nothing. You should have a PowerPoint for that next show and just put yeah, it up. There. That'll be our sponsor. I'll, I'll go get that sponsor for our next you show. Have, What's wrong? Oh, with actually, Matt? I think I've got a great sponsor for next week. I just want to call it Daddy Issues. Okay, but you have to. I think you need to go to the wonderful Wizard of Oz and get a heart like a Tin Man. That's that's your. That'll <laughs> that's, solve it. I'll just I'll like just start following man. the bricks outside of my house. That's what I'll do. Yeah. All right. Well, once again, thank you very much, Scott Silverman, for coming on our show. This has been uh, the Law Offices of Quibble Squabble and Bicker. Our consultation with the law offices of Quiddle, Squabble, and Picker has ended. You may pay your retainer at www.qsblah.org. Please exit to the right of the water cooler and grab a candy from the front desk. We hope to see you again soon, but you need to leave now. I said leave. Why don't they ever listen? Get out. Get out.